Welcome to the St. Emelins Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is a bumper double edition, the summertime edition, June and July. Simon, life has been busy for both of us, hence why we didn't get together sooner than this. But we are right at the beginning of August, an exciting time around the country. New doctors starting in emergency departments throughout the country. But also we should take a moment just to thank everyone who's been working with us for the last four or six months. It's been a slightly crazy time and I think everyone's really done their bit to to join the fray and do the best they can. It's been a really tough, well, not just the last four months, but the whole year really. So, you know, thanks to everybody who's worked through emergency medicine. Those of you who wanted to be here, great. Those of you who didn't want to be here, thanks a lot as well. Um, It's been great to have you, but, you know, go on to greater and wonderful things. I hope you have fond memories of us. And for those just joining, they may not have discovered the St. Emelins podcast yet, but if you're working with them, please point them in our direction, not least the induction podcasts and lesson plans, which I'm optimistically hoping that people are using as we record now in their programs to get people started off and running in their departments. But Simon, we've got a lot to talk about, two months of blog posts. So we should crack on as people want us to get to the meat of it, I think. Let's start first. We've got a lot of guest contributors this these last two months, which is great. And so let's talk about Sia McDermott. And he did a piece with, with colleagues, actually, about digital disruption. And this is about how we use technology effectively. I certainly know that I struggle to make the best use of technology and I'm going through one of those times where a digital detox may well be required. What did you think about all of this? It was good. And uh, just a shout out to Leah Flanagan and Mohammed Hamza, who are the two other people who specifically helped on this one. I quite liked it. I thought this was very much um, a development of um, some blog posts, which uh, Scott Weingart did some years ago when he did the, you know, getting shit done blog post. And that was really transformative with me. It taught me loads of tips about being more productive, about getting the most out of the day and making that, you know, get to the end of the week and you feel I've actually achieved something. Um, So I took a lot of the things that Scott said on board and it's really changed what I did. And this is sort of moving on from uh, the things Scott talked about because it's talking about even even newer technologies and newer apps that can improve your productivity in a way that actually can fit in with the work-life balance that we have in emergency medicine. So there's lots of things in there. I think it's eight or nine different tips, but one of the ones which I've taken on board and I've definitely used since is using an app which actually stops me from using my phone for a period of time. So it actually blocks my, well, it doesn't block my phone, but it gives me uh, penalties if I pick up my phone for, for within a 25-minute period. And that's given me the opportunity to be much more focused about some task, and I've been much more productive as a result. So I think when you go through this, There'll be, as usual with these things, there's sort of nine or 10 different tips, but there'll be something in there for everybody to actually make your life a little bit better. And I, I, I pride myself on being pretty efficient. I get a lot of things done in a short amount of time. I still learn stuff from here. I must admit that in the last couple of months, I actually bought an Apple Watch in the aim of using my phone less. I'm not sure if that's actually working out, that I buy more technology to use other technology uh, less than I was before. But it seems to sort of work. I keep my watch on, put my phone in my pocket, and then only if that little buzz comes on my wrist do I have to think about anything. And also, obviously, it spots if I have an atrial tachycardia, which is yet to happen. So uh, fingers crossed for that one. Everyone's going to be thinking about their apps. But moving on to the next post, Simon, it's still with us, isn't it? So I don't know. We're in the fourth wave, fifth wave, COVID-19. It's still with us. And we've now, since we last recorded in the UK, parts of the UK anyway, we've had some relaxation of rules. There's been worries about that. There's been fears. Departments in the UK certainly have been much busier, but not really with COVID. But this post particularly was about aspirin, that natural drug that we seem to find a use for in so many illnesses and whether or not it'd work in COVID. 
Yeah, so we had quite high hopes for this one. It's part of the recovery trial, which we've talked about a lot before. This is the big trial in the UK, a randomized controlled trial, open label, and for any COVID patients admitted to hospital with a mortality outcome uh, 28 days or continuing um, ventilation. So it's a really nice, pragmatic, platform-based trial. We've talked about it before. Uh, just as a reminder, um, actually, so far, the trial has shown that certain things don't work hydroxychloroquine, lipinavirutonavir, convalescent plasma, azithromycin, colchicine. And we also now know that dexamethasone and tocilizumab in a select group of patients do work. And I'm going to talk about one of the other ones. There's another trial out this month in a second. But aspirin, we thought might work. There's a lot of patients who end up with um, problems with uh, DVTs, for instance, PEs. It might have had an effect there. It might have had a general anti-inflammatory effect because we do know that those patients who come into hospital are often that autoimmune inflammatory phase of COVID-19. But sadly, um, it didn't seem to show a benefit. Randomized quite a lot of patients for this, actually. There were 7,351 patients randomized to 150 milligrams of aspirin once a day, compared to that to 7,541. Just think about those numbers, Ian. That's nearly 15,000 patients in this trial. This wasn't running from the beginning of COVID-19. This has been only running for a few months. But because so many people were potentially eligible, we managed to get it through. But sadly, no difference in mortality, 17% versus 17%. Also worth noting that that mortality rate is so much lower than we had in the first wave. We've made so many, so much progression from that first wave when mortality was really high. We managed to bash it down with lots of different things, including things like dexamethasone, oxygen therapy, and general nursing care. We've, you know, This is incredible. It's incredible what we've done with this disease. So aspirin's a no-no, but we may as well just jump ahead now and think about the other recovery trial drug that has been blogged about recently in the last couple of months, and that's about monoclonal antibodies. Now, I have a memory of a previous president talking about these and these being big news. Yeah, so this is really interesting. And this, this I've got to say, is not what I had predicted. So I have said on this podcast many times that I didn't think that antiviral therapies were going to be that effective in COVID-19 patients in hospital. Because by the time you get to hospital, you're not really in the viral phase of disease. You're um, in that autoimmune and sort of inflammatory phase. So what's the point in doing the antivirals? Give them early. Maybe it has an effect, but not for the hospitalized patients. And um, most of the things I've just talked about, so the lipinavir and tonavir and the colchicine and the other, some of the other drugs are antivirals. So I was expecting this monoclonal antibody. So these are specifically designed antibodies that attack the virus gave those randomized control trial in hospitalized patients, I didn't think it was going to have an effect. And so I was really surprised. And that makes me really excited because I love a surprise in research. It's much more exciting to get a surprise than to have exactly what you thought would happen. In this study, they've definitely shown that there's a difference in outcome for patients on the monoclonal antibodies if they are seronegative on admission. So this get your head around this one in. There are some patients who turn up in, in hospital who've just not mounted a response to the virus. So they don't, they have not produced their own antibodies. And in that group, there's a significant benefit to treatment with these monoclonal antibodies. And so what we what we're going to see, I think, is patients have their autoantibodies measured when they come into hospital. And if they're seronegative, they're going to get these monoclonal antibodies. And that's really exciting. And this really leads into us talking a bit more about how we can think in the future about making treatments more specific for individuals, because we're all made differently, aren't we? And we've seen how different individuals respond to COVID particularly. We've seen higher mortality rates in different groups. But there's this idea now that perhaps we should be tailoring that even more. 
And Rick Body has started a new series, which I'm hoping he'll very much continue, which thinks a little bit about this. And he was talking about chest pain and what we might do in 20 or 30 years time to treat diseases that come to us in the emergency department and how we might actually look to not just give the same treatment to everybody because some treatments just won't work as we just talked about with the monoclonal antibodies and actually we'd somehow be able to tailor our treatments and make sure that the right treatment goes to the right patient and by that I don't just mean the right antibiotic for the right bug and this got me really thinking although I have to say Rick's post did one make me wonder whether or not there was actually going to be any need for doctors in the future. Oh, there'll always be a need for doctors, Ian, um, because we need to do the interpretation and the risk management, but I kind of know what you mean. So Rick's put this um, blog post together looking at the, the future potential, for, particularly around diagnostics um, and also to some degree therapeutics in chest pain. And all the things that he talks about in here, because it sounds rather fanciful that there'll be a, you know, a bot that have a little monitor that you have in your body, which will monitor your ECG in real time and monitor you know, cardiovascular risk factors in real time. Well, actually, those kind of exist already in some way, shape or form. And the natural history of, of technology is it gets smaller, cheaper and more efficient um, over time. We've seen that with things like the, the mobile telephone or cars, etc. You can see where we are now in terms of the technology. And what Rick is trying to do with these series is to sort of throw that further forward and say, where could we be at this moment in time? The, you know, the idea of the implantable diagnostics cardiovascular module, you know, measuring cardiac troponin baselines, and looking for whether or not there's been bumps above or below a certain level after exertion or after an event and choosing which patients this goes into and how would you do this and looking at NT pro BNP levels, which you can potentially do in real time, quite remarkable. And then how that communicates with your pre-existing risk factors and what you're going to do about it and then targeted therapies. It could happen. But in my, my worry about this when I was reading is it's, it's very much aimed at high income countries and an affluence. And I think one of the caveats I've got with this one is that many of the opportunities he talks about here will probably never be available to the to perhaps even the majority of the world. And we do always, we're very lucky to have uh, members of the team who do keep us in touch with the lower middle income countries and, and how the things we're talking about in the UK could be useful. And also how some of the stuff we talk about is just not relevant and Things do get cheaper, though. They, I think there is an idea about global health and trying to improve things for people across the world. And these technologies will come. It, it reminds me, firstly, of my Apple Watch, which I mentioned before. I mean, that's just sitting on my wrist trying to tell me if my heart's going fast. Uh, and then, of course, I'm just waiting for the hoverboard. So would you would you a hoverboard? And I don't think I've yet seen one of those. So as soon as there's a hoverboard, I'm, I'm going to get properly excited about the future. What's and that'll make me really delighted. There's some other stuff out there already, and I don't know whether you know, but um, I remember being at a, a, a SMAC conference some many years ago, many, many years ago, when somebody who was working with Apple told me that they would have a device on an Apple on a watch, which would be able to measure your heart rate and tell you whether you got a dysrhythmia. And I thought, right, really? And it was almost inconceivable that this could happen. We now, you know, there's millions of them around the world. The Good Sam app. Have you used the Good Sam app? Oh, of course, yeah. Got, yeah, absolutely. It's now got a functionality, which I was shown by Mark Wilson, where you can actually point at somebody's face as a distance using the camera, and it will tell you what their pulse rate is. You know, it's really quite remarkable what is out there already. It's just making those more mainstream and finding our um, ability to use them. Again, I've always got caveats with this is, 
you know, at the moment, you and I work in the emergency department, people turn up when they're symptomatic, they've got a problem, we need to fix it. How are we going to deal with in the future people turning up and saying, my watch tells me that I'm got an increased risk of having a stroke in the next 24 hours, do something about it. You know, there's potentially a whole different world of medicine that could result, you know, emergency medicine about moving into that, oh, this person is now high risk, but the event's not even actually happened yet. How do we deal with that? It could be fascinating. And that's why I think we'll always need doctors. I think there's always going to be that potential for us doing complex decisions, complex risk-based decisions, and that's what we're good at. Uh, and be clear, I don't base my whole life on movies, but uh, the minority report of healthcare sounds like it's on its way. Uh, another movie for people to check out. Um, so that's the future. But let's talk a bit more about today and what's been happening with our weather recently. And we went through this period of having a well, pretty significant heat wave, actually. And then this idea of thunderstorm asthma. And this is one of those great times where we see something on Twitter and we think it just deserves to be publicized more. And the author gets in touch or we get in touch with them and it becomes a blog post and it gets out there. And this was from Sophie Farouk about thunderstorm asthma. This idea that the weather can affect just how much grass pollen is in the atmosphere and just how much that can influence patients and their disease and whether or not they're going to turn up in the emergency department and whether or not actually you need to pay attention to the weather forecast a bit more. This is, I thought was really interesting, actually. And I've seen this. I seem to remember seeing this years ago and reading papers about it. But essentially, I mean, it's Sophie Farouk. She's an allergist from London who um, Linda Dykes put us in touch with, if you know Linda, who's a, a big contributor to FOMED um, and, and Twitter and et cetera. She put us in touch. And the idea is that if you've got a lot of grass pollen in the air and then the thunderstorm happens and you get lots of lightning, it cracks open the, the, the grass pollen to smaller fragments, which then can get further down into the respiratory tract and essentially cause what appears to be clinically something like an asthma attack. So instead of you know people like me who've got hay fever getting a big you know clagged up nose, you actually get the cough and you get the inflammation in your um, lower respiratory tract and it looks very much like asthma. And of course, this can be amongst people who've never had asthma before and then suddenly present with really quite severe symptoms. Better described, I think, in other parts of the world, I think it's the most common place might actually be in Australia. Seems to be quite a few reports have come out of places like Melbourne. Um, but there certainly has been occurrences of this in the UK and it is something we should be aware of. Now, it does seem to be just grass pollen that this um, occurs with because there are other pollens around. I think believe things like silver birch, where if it occurred for that, that would be worse because I think the, the effects are worse and it's a different time of year. But certainly this time of year, you get somebody who comes in, got a history of hay fever, there's been a thunderstorm and they look like they've got severe asthma. This is something to think about. So Simon, it's going to present quite similar to asthma. I'm presuming that the treatment for that is as we would do for an acute severe asthma attack. It is, but also making sure that you definitely, definitely do give them the antihistamines as well. So yeah, treat them as an asthma, but make sure you get some antihistamines into them as well. And that's essentially it. And I guess not label them as being asthmatic afterwards, uh, as we do with children who present with viral wheeze. Take everything in context. Not, not all that wheezes is asthma. Now, the next few posts we had were really about how to develop a research portfolio and how to apply for jobs and then how to publish. It'd be worth just going through those, I think, to think, because there are people now looking, and there always have been, for other strings to their bow, things that can balance out the chaos and hectic nature of working in an emergency department. And they should be encouraged. And it's great to see emergency medicine and emergency care research becoming more and more to the top of people's 
priority list. Now, I know, Simon, Professor Carly, you've been involved with this for many years. But for, you know, people like me, it seemed to be harder to get involved. It was great to have Ed Carlton, who I know well from previous times at Southampton and now obviously at Bristol, and Samantha Jones to write this post about emergency care research. What are your top tips about getting involved? I guess it depends on where you are in your training program or or career. Um, so if you're very early on, then going down the the academic pathways, your academic clinical fellows, lectureships, and HR posts and stuff like that. If that's what you want to do in the long term, fantastic. Go down those routes. It's really well supported. There's lots and lots of help out there. And certainly in emergency medicine, the career path there is much better described and worked on than it used to be. Um, I think there's some really important stuff in here about getting good advice. So tip number three, which is the one I'd really want people to focus on, is get yourself a mentor, a coach and a sponsor. They're quite different things. Um, I quite like the idea describing those three different things as a mentor talks with you, a coach talks to you and a sponsor talks about you. And those might be three different people in the world of research who can help you develop your career, give you the opportunities and get, get you the well, get you the opportunities to develop your skills both generically and to get involved in project i think there's lots and lots of tips here also if you didn't if you missed that bone you're coming into it later there's still the opportunity to get into research there's i know some really fantastic people who got in having done very little at trainee level but at consultant level they've decided they want to get involved they've taken on a role as a principal investigator for a study like cryostat or one of the big national studies developed it in their department had a really good time got time in their job plans to do it and get a huge amount of uh, you know self-worth and departmental pride in doing so so no matter where you are there's some tips in here about how you get involved and of course we should mention thomas shanahan who put this post together is one of your colleagues up in Manchester, isn't he, Simon, doing research at the moment and is working with the Emergency Medicine Trainees Association or EMTA as their research representative. So if you are a trainee and keen on getting into this, Thomas has very much put himself forward as being there to help, to assist. And there's details in the post about how you can get hold of him. I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear from you because it really is a case of the more the merrier, isn't it? It is. And there's there's lots of groups out there. I mean, just don't try and do everything on your own. Go and speak to other people, get involved in other research groups, you know, show an interest, show some enthusiasm and go with some ideas. Don't just turn up. I want, I want to do research. But you know, why do you want to do research? How do you want to get involved? What sort of things are you going to do in the background to make you better at it? You know, what's your lifetime career goals? How are you going to make this happen? Now, as you go through your career, it's not just become doctor, stay doctor, be doctor for the rest of life. It is, as we've said, the opportunity to do new things and different things. And Nick Smith, who works with Manchester uh, Medical School, uh, put together a post about how to apply for a clinical education fellow post. Now, I think this is really relevant to all sorts of posts that you might apply for, whether that's with medical school or postgraduate teaching or whatever it might be. And it's worth thinking about how you do this. I know that Nick when I've talked to him off offline, if you like, has, has talked about just how many applications they can get for these things and to make your application look different and to also to decide whether or not a post is right for you. There are an awful lot of fellow posts going around at the moment or FY3 posts or whatever it might be to be, let's honest, fill rotor gaps. And we've got to make sure both the seniors and those in those posts that those are relevant and you're using the extra time you've been given to do something. We mentioned Linda Dykes earlier. She did this when she was working in Bangor hugely successfully, well ahead of the game with the mountain medicine type 
placements and it's happening more and more. So have a look at this post if you are applying for something. and But also think about as you apply, is it right for you? And is it going to give you what you want? Because it is really that sometimes some places will appoint you purely about trying to get what they want. And it has to be a balance. I think so. And when I was reading this, there's lots of sort of specific um, recommendations or ideas from Nick, which you should definitely go and have a look at. But what struck me is when you look at these clinical fellow posts, why are people applying to them? Is it because it's a decision of indecision, that they've got nothing else that they can think to do, where they want to do something different? It doesn't really matter what it is. Or is it a move towards something that they genuinely want to do, that they're genuinely enthusiastic and interested in? Clearly, there's there's no surprise that one of those is going to be more successful than the other. So when you are applying for these posts, look for something which is going to add value to you, but you're going to be interested in it. And that people, as Ian says, people are actually going to support you. And they're doing it there because they're also passionate about this as well. And they're not just trying to put a bum on a seat. My anxiety is, is that people see these job plans or these posts where they're 80% clinical and oh you can have 20% non-clinical time or 25% or 30% it seems to be that trusts keep bidding higher and higher to get people in post and actually that doesn't mean anything try and make sure it means something and use those tips we've had before about finding a mentor finding somebody who you can talk to when you're doing those posts to make the most you don't get these chances that often so really embrace them as best you can Simon, there is a third set of posts that we've got about equitable publishing. And I think what we should do is we still haven't published part three of that. So I'm going to just keep that on one side for next month, because then we can talk about all three. But that really will round off quite nicely this discussion we're having about how you develop yourself and research, because this will then go and talk about how we can go on to think about publishing papers. Two more to go. It's been a busy couple of months. Very quickly, ultrasound in the shocked patient. Good idea, bad idea. Should we do it? What's happening with point of care ultrasound? Is it dead? Is it something that everybody should do? Good post from um, Pete Hume here. Um, Go and have a look at it. Look through the evidence. I think a lot of people will find this surprising. Um, My conclusion from this is, yes, it gives you additional information, but we've yet to demonstrate really that that makes a massive difference to patient outcome. However, put that alongside my day-to-day practice, I find it really difficult to practice without ultrasound in the recess room, looking at the um, the cardiovascular stability or not stability of my patients. But then again, I've got lots of colleagues who don't ultrasound and they seem to do fine. And maybe that's also reflective of where the evidence is as well. So more information I like, because I think it makes me a better doctor, but more information hasn't in the studies necessarily transformed into real differences in terms of mortality. And that is interesting. But there are those it's some people truly believe, don't they? There are believers and 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 non-believers. And I think both can work together very happily. I do remember at a international conference once saying to a relatively esteemed, relatively esteemed, what am I talking about? Scott Weingart, that I didn't really think ultrasound was that helpful, at which point he decided to tweet that to his many tens of thousand followers, uh, which, you know, I was grateful for at the time. Uh, good old Scott. Simon, let's finally just think about a trial which many of our listeners will have heard about. Many of them will have heard other podcasts about, but we've just added into the blog site here. You wrote a post just a few days ago about the TTM2 trial, normothermia or hypothermia post-cardiac arrest. So we have been trying, I think, to think about keeping patients, well, certainly not hot uh, in the post-cardiac arrest period. And this really was the trial to decide whether that was what we needed to keep doing and I think the decision has been made don't you? 
I think so, yeah. And, and just sort of reflecting on Scott, who's um, a fantastic sort of ally to us and we've done so much work with him. And, and this paper, again, when the first trial, first big randomized control trial of hypothermia versus normothermia came out to targeted temperature management one, which was when we, it was published when we were at SMAC in the Gold Coast, I think. So many years ago. I remember, you know, Scott and myself sort of racing to sort of get to the, the point where we could get it out and blog and talk about it back then. And, and as you say, there's some brilliant posts on this, including on the MCRIT site. But essentially, in the targeted temperature management one, they showed no benefit from going to post um, ROSC temperature 33 or 36. That was in contrast to the smaller randomized control trials before that, which had shown a benefit to a, a lower temperature. But in the in the early trials, they didn't really control for for fever. So they did TTM1, 33 versus 36. The criticism of that was that it took them a long time to get to that um, target temperature. And so TTM2, which is the one that's been published this month, was really trying to take out those nuances in TTM1, trying their very best to get people as cool as possible and not necessarily to target 36, but just to avoid them having a fever at more than 37.8. Long story short, 1,850 patients, no difference in outcome. So it didn't seem to make any difference. And you think, okay, well, that's that's it. We've got it sus now. It doesn't matter whether you do 33 or 36, but it's harder to do 33, so we'll do 36. And I think actually, from my perspective, um, not as an intensivist, I think that's probably where the evidence lies now. But there are others who disagree. Uh, Justin Morganston on the, the first 10 EM um, site done a really good review of this. And he points out quite rightly that they haven't really tested whether fever is dangerous. So it could be that 36 or, you know, 33 or anything at all is okay. We just don't really know. I actually think it's unlikely that anybody's going to do that. I think we're probably not going to get a TTM3 where people just allow people to become hypothermic if they want to. So I think this is probably where the evidence is going to stop for now. Other people might say, well, it even took them three hours to get them cold. You know, well, they tried really hard. <laughs> I'm not sure we can get them colder that much quicker. And so even the pre-hospital trials of hypothermia haven't shown a difference. So we are where we are. As the evidence stands now, 30, keeping them below 37.8 seems to be the thing to do. And there we are. That is June and July on the blog site. It's been busy times. And I know, Simon, you've been off doing all sorts of exciting stuff, hence why we were just a bit late getting to the party here. But it's great to be back together. We should mention now that there is a, a sea change afoot in the UK. So for our international listeners, we have now changed our syllabus in the UK, uh, in line with the General Medical Council, who's been looking to try and modify syllabuses across all of the specialties. And from the next couple of days, the trainees in emergency medicine will be using a new syllabus. And I'm delighted to say that on the St. Emily's site, we do have something to help you with this. We have linked all of our posts to the new specialty learning outcomes. These are the broad topics that the college and the GMC are looking to us being able to do. And all of the posts that we post will be linked to those. And you can easily find them if you just go to emergency medicine curricula on the site, find Archem Curriculum 2021, and you'll see it all there for you. Not linked just to the specialty learning outcomes, but also linked to the individual clinical presentations as well. So get dating back almost 10 years, all of the things we've produced. And don't forget, each of those posts can be part of your evidence that you are 
doing those things that you need to do. So special learning outcome one care for physiologically stable adult patients presenting across the full range of complexity. Well, click on that and you will find many, many posts to help with your education and your experience. So please do use that. And if you're trainers, then do point your trainees in that direction as we all start to get used to this new curriculum. But I think it will be a really beneficial move forward. So in Pedant's Corner this week, this month, um, and I want people to write in because I genuinely don't know the answer to this one, um, there is a difference between a syllabus and a curriculum. So they've advertised it as a curriculum. But when I look at the definitions, I think it's a syllabus. So I think you might be right. But who cares? It's Pedant's Corner. Shall I move on to something more interesting instead? Well, then sometimes you also have learning objectives and learning outcomes. It's it's a minefield that only educationalists can argue about. Uh, but I have stumbled across this before in medical undergraduate education also. Whatever it's called, it's there for you and we're there to help at St. Emlyn's. There will be more blog posts coming your way. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's an exciting month. Hopefully everyone's got a bit of time to go and relax over August, as well as bringing enthusiasm and all of the excitement that the emergency department brings to our new range of colleagues. Please keep enjoying your emergency medicine.